The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. And we've been looking at this topic just started last week of resoluteness. And when we hear something about effort or determination or resoluteness or commitment, it can scare us. You know, we're it's like so many of these beautiful qualities. We always are suspicious of <laughs> being spiritual or becoming a good person because there's some sense that everything we have will be taken away from us. You know, we'll be left with nothing. Or in the case of determination, like if I try to be committed to something I believe is good, and then I fail, it's like a setup for feeling bad about ourselves. So why even try? Because if I try, I'll probably fail. You know, if I try to diet, if I try to, you know, eat good food or sit and meditate every day, change my life in some way, what happens if it doesn't work? So it's interesting. Well, what, how is a human being to use commitment? How do we use commitment, this committedness, this resoluteness, to move in the, in the direction of happiness? And it isn't just like a movement of blind faith. Oh, I just believe it's going to work for me. I want it to work for me. I want to quit this or I want to develop this. As I talked about last week, it really arises when we begin to track our experience, have enough mindfulness that we can actually track what's going on, and we begin to see slowly, gradually, more clearly the causes for stress and the causes for happiness or the release of stress in the heart, in the mind. And that power of resoluteness really comes from having observed this actually works, this living in this way, relating this way, acting in this way, (coughs) training my mind in this way, actually leads to happy states, released states, freedom from suffering. If we really saw that clearly, we would be committed. We'd be resolute. So what's in the way of being resolute, living in a more determined, (coughs) a more committed way, what gets in the way is that we don't have confidence based clearly on like connecting the dots, like what actually leads to happiness. I mentioned three from the Buddhist teachings last week. I'll just review them. So these are called the roots or the basis of meritorious action. But in sort of more ordinary words, the causes for happiness. So the Buddha says, and he's not even talking about (coughs) a deeper spiritual happiness, just ordinary happiness that anybody would recognize, he says, comes from these three things. Cultivating generosity, cultivating uh, virtue or this commitment to non-harming, this reverence for life, and developing your mind or developing the balance and clarity and steadiness of the mind. What we call samadhi, the Pali word, for when the mindfulness is continuous enough and the distractedness and superficiality has been put to the side, that's called developing the mind. So if you want to be a happy human being in just the ordinary sense of the word, then check it out. Or you could do the other. You could like cultivate stinginess, be neglectful of causing harm to others, and don't bother, you know, cultivate distractedness and superficiality and see whether you become more unhappy, right? Because the Buddha would say this is lawful. And 
it's universal. It isn't like specific to some people, but doesn't apply to other people. And it doesn't even matter. We just need to begin somewhere. So why don't we check out? I mean, you could just start without the pointing out instruction. So forget that it, the Buddha or you know some wise person said that it, happiness, ordinary happiness, resonant happiness, generating com- um, uh, generosity, this commitment to non-harming, and developing the mind. You could just randomly just start acting in ways, relating in ways, and just keep good notes and see. Well, what actually supports happiness? Or when you notice that you're suffering, you could then ask yourself, well, what, what set this in motion? How did I get here? We do this anyway. You know, we're really miserable. And then we go, well, how did I get here? How did I become this miserable person? What came before? What came before that? What attitude was there? What choices were made? What kind of motivation was there in my mind? What intention was there in my mind? And we can do the same thing when we feel relatively light and feel like we belong and feel like we're unafraid. We could say, well, how did I get here? How did the heart-mind get here? It wasn't random. It just didn't drop from outer space. There were causes and conditions that led to happiness. And then there's a real confidence that gets born out of checking that out tracking that, connecting the dots. There's a a useful chapter in one of Ajahn Sumedho's little booklets called Now is the Knowing. Ajahn Sumedho is one of the early Western Buddhist monks. He went to Thailand in the mid-60s and ordained as a monk. He's in his 80s now. And... uh, Fortunately, was able, after a year of practice, to connect with Ajahn Chah, a very well-known Thai teacher, Buddhist monk. And he practiced with Ajahn Chah for 10 years and then eventually was sent to England and uh, started some monasteries there and in Western Europe, And although he's American originally. Um, but now he's retired from being the abbot. And, uh, but anyway, you can get this online if you just Google now is the knowing and then Sumedho is S-U-M-E-D-H-O, Ajahn Sumedho. Now is the, the knowing. And there's a chapter in that booklet on Anapanasati, which is just mindfulness of breathing. And he talks about the simple practice of being aware of the breath as it comes in, being aware of the breath as it goes out. And you know, in many ways, we know those of us who have practiced this or whatever meditation technique you've taken up, they're really challenging because, I mean, something as simple as just being aware of the breath, the sensations of the breath as you breathe in and breathe out, is not so easy. So, where does that resolute, determined, committed um, application of the mind? this awareness of the breath coming in and the breath going out come from? You know, it doesn't matter if somebody inspiring comes up and tells us to do it. We might. That might matter for like a few breaths. But then we lose the inspiration and it seems better to worry or to plan or to wonder what the person's doing next to us or is the time almost over or, you know, all the things we fill the space of our meditation practice with. But when we have directly seen that putting down the world, putting down past and future, putting down ideas of me and you and good and bad, putting that all down and just being aware of breathing in, being aware of breathing out, and seeing the connection between this truly radical act of putting everything down and needing to give the mind something to do. Like in order to let go of worry, let go of being a somebody, letting go of having a future to be responsible for or a past to haunt us or mesmerize us about all the good days in the past, 
to have some freedom from all of the constructions of the mind, you got to give the mind something to do. So if we can be resolute, committed to something like being aware of the breath coming in, being aware of the breath going out, we can truly have a vacation from being a somebody and all the weight that goes with being a somebody. And maybe it lasts just 30 seconds or two minutes if you're lucky. But guaranteed, if you do that, you'll see the resolution, the resoluteness, the committedness, the determination. It will increase because there will be a direct and immediate unshakable confidence that, well, that works pretty well. That was pretty amazing. The problem with life isn't that it's difficult or it's exciting. The problem with life is that we don't know how to put things down. So it's like, there's a story that I tell sometimes, I actually heard it, I think originally from um, Ed Brown, who's a well-known Zen teacher from the San Francisco Zen Center originally. And uh, he wrote, I think he wrote the Tassajara Bread Book and maybe some of the other Tassajara cookbooks way back when. A number of books, cookbooks. But he's a well-known Zen teacher. But he, he tells this great story and it really has to do with our mind. He, I, I call it the wish-fulfilling tree. Some of you have heard this because I tell it a lot, retell it a lot. But you can imagine somebody walking on a hot day and just having the thought, boy, it would be nice to have a shady tree to rest under. And <clears throat> sure enough, crossing, I mean, turning the corner, there's this big, beautiful tree, has a lot of shade, sits underneath the tree, really appreciating the shade. <clears throat> and the thought arises in the mind of this person, it would be no, so nice to hang out with someone here under this shady tree. And <clears throat> sure enough, in a few moments, somebody's walking around the corner, person sits down under the tree with them, and they're... <clears throat> they hit it off well, enjoying each other's company. And the guy thinks, God, it would be great to have some juicy fruits. And he looks up, <clears throat> some really ripe fruit in the tree. He picks it. They start having a delicious meal together and starts imagining other things like maybe somebody will come by and sell us some cool drinks and maybe this other thing will happen. And every time he thought of something, there it was. And he started to get suspicious, like this is a little, you know, good to be true and the thought arose in his mind I wonder if there's a demon in this tree fattening fattening me up and he looks and sure enough there's a big scary demon in the tree I bet this demon's going to eat me up and sure enough the demon ate him up and this is a story about our mind it's like we have you whether you call it imagination or whatever you might call it we have this capacity to construct drama, beautiful drama, scary drama, boring drama. We can construct, and tonight actually is the night we celebrate part of that capacity, right? Academy Awards. I mean, some of the most imaginative people, they get paid a lot of money to construct these stories, right? And the really smart people sort of bring it to life in, in, uh, in film. But we do it in all kinds of ways. And so when we sit down, we actually have this very poignant choice. And this is where resoluteness comes in. We can continue doing what we've always done, which is constructing stories and being fascinated and excited and frightened by them. I'm going to get fired. She doesn't love me anymore. You know, I'm getting fat. Bernie Sanders not going to win, or whatever, you know, whatever sort of <laughs> excites you or depresses you, right? We can, and the thing is, these stories, these ideas, these dramas, to really magically, they seem magically significant or important. They always do. And if they don't, we immediately follow up with another one until we get one that at least momentarily seems relevant, right? And then we're complicit with each other in these dramas too. Like there's nothing better than having people around us that have shared the same drama, right? Because then it feels more real. Doesn't 
feel a little weird like I'm whipping this thing up for myself. Other people care about this. Other people see it this way. And so when we sit down, we need that determination. We need that resoluteness, not because it's hard, but because it's not the habit of the mind, or that's what makes it hard. So we have this huge choice. And to think of it as like we're already we're already quite committed with the first choice, which is just to keep using imagination, constructing drama, story, getting swept away. So as we begin to be suspicious, you know, we've gotten some teachings, maybe we've checked it out a little, and maybe we're starting, we're sensitive enough, and we're starting to feel a little exhausted by the stories we tell and the addiction we have to the stories we tell, scaring ourselves, exciting ourselves, creating the backstory, imagining future scenarios. And it just starts to feel weightful and a little exhausting or a lot exhausting. And we start to feel or intuit, sense this wholesome desire to put down the load. What would it be to put down the load? And then, so we get some instructions. Well, you can't directly put down the load. You have to give your mind something to do, and you have to do it so wholeheartedly with so much determination, so much resoluteness, so much 100% that you can't tell the stories. So when we, some of us were playing Ultimate Frisbee today, and it's, you know, not for very long, because <laughs> I haven't played it before, and I'm not in very good shape. And <laughs> it was about 35 minutes before we were completely fried. At least I was. But during the time we were playing and laughing and having a great time, it's like the world disappeared, right? I wasn't concerned about anything except breathing (laughs) (laughs) and running and passing and catching and laughing. And that was it. And that's why we like to play. So breath, you know, something simple like opening to hearing or opening to the experience of breathing in and breathing out or feeling love for the people around us as we did at the beginning today. These simple things, if we can give ourselves to them 100% as if our life depended on it, we put everything down. And then it's not so much that the breath breathing in and being aware of the breath coming in is special. It's the wholeheartedness. It's doing that 100% so that everything else is gone. That's what's amazing. And it's directly experienced. And so then that's the feedback loop where we become resolute. Oh, this works. I remember, I think it was uh, 83 or 84, maybe 1984. Um, And I had been practicing for a couple years, every day, almost every day. And, you know, not very well, but I did it and put my time in. Even a couple times a day, I I started practicing a couple times a day. An old roommate of mine from college, or a a good friend, rather, of mine from college, ended up back in, uh, he was studying in Europe and came back to the States and ended up going to grad school the same place I had gone. And we were in Berkeley, California together. And we moved in. And it turns out that while we were away from each other for those couple of years, uh, we both got really into meditation. And uh, so we moved in and we were gung- we were kind of really crazy, crazily gung-ho. And so we got up every morning and practiced. And then when we got back at the end of the day, we'd practice before we'd make our meal together, evening meal together. And we were like every day doing that. And one day I remember, I can still remember it, sitting in his bedroom, meditating, I don't know, just like 30 minutes, 45 minutes. And my mind just settled down. I had just a very simple, 
ordinary experience of the mind quieting down. But it was so remarkable to see what this mind was capable of. Like it was really capable of putting everything down. And then what's left, it's like the mind is dispersed, distracted, scattered, fragmented, weak, weakened by worrying and planning and judging and comparing and all the things that the thinking mind does. And so when it doesn't do that, then the mind comes together. You know, we say it unifies or it comes into this unified state of samadhi. And that state, that unified state, that steady, stable, clear, peaceful, and pleasant state, well, it's like an altered state. It's not a common state of mind. And so the first time somebody sees it, it's like you want to get on top of a, a soapbox and tell the world, like, did you know that this can happen? Because it's surprising when the mind quiets down and we see, oh my God. And that probably everybody in the room has had some taste of moving in that direction. You certainly know when your mind is really fried and scattered, right? And good for nothing. Well, how about when it, well, have you explored what the nth degree of that is? Or like, have you gotten as far in the direction of wholeness as it can go? Why are we interested in that? Right? Because it feels so good. It's so healing. It's so pleasant when it does that. So all the good things, like to the energy that it takes to go against the stream, because the cultural stream is of distraction and superficiality and being obsessive about things that ultimately aren't that important. Even things that are important are ultimately not that important. Right? We could be obsessed about health, but it doesn't matter how obsessed you are about health, your life is going to end. Right? We can be obsessed about money. It doesn't matter how obsessed we are about money, it will run out or you know, at some point won't matter. So I'm not saying we should not take responsibility for the body or for earning a living or saving in a reasonable way or whatever else we do. But it doesn't really take care of us. What is our refuge? And so resoluteness in the Buddhist tradition is like first with humility and absence of arrogance, we say, if it's true, I don't know what the refuge is. So that makes us a good learner, like who knows about what might be actually worthy of putting my heart on, placing my heart on, heart upon. Like what direction is a worthy direction to move, to aim? What direction actually leads to the, as the Buddha calls it, the unshakable release or the great unbinding of the heart? And it's not like we're going to do the whole path based on somebody's words, but we'll check it out and see what the effect is. Oh, yeah. So far, that seems to be good. Or that doesn't work at all. You know, trying to be better than everybody, that's not making me happy. It's making me neurotic. You know, or needing to be, needing this person to love me. Like in terms of the circle of giving and receiving that I mentioned um, that we use here at Common Ground. But that's like, again, it's not a clever trick to get people to donate. It's offered as a, a way to explore how to be happy. And I mentioned this morning in the talk, um, my partner was here, uh, Wynn, who is also one of the co-founders of Common Ground. And... Uh, you know, now we've been married for uh, since 93, so 23 years. And, uh, and we lived together a few years before that. So we've been together for a long time. And I'm just slowly learning that uh, how unpleasant it is to run the relationship on this business model that I'll be nice to you if you're nice to me. If you do what I want, you to do, then I might do what you want me to do. And this sort of tit-for-tat kind of 
which is very common in our culture, maybe everywhere. And uh, and it's like I, I noticed over the years, because um, I try to pay attention, I noticed how I would be inclined to just be naturally generous in moments, not a lot, but in moments. But I would like stop myself, like, wait a minute. You know, what am I... It's like that old mentality, that ancient mentality. Well, what am I going to get for this? I could... What should I ask for? Or does she deserve it? And that the thing that, that that attitude missed is that natural wish to be affectionate or be kind or be a good person. It was pleasant. I didn't actually need anything in return. That the doing it itself was the reward, right? I didn't need to use it as a chip, a bargaining chip. And just to see that, like, oh, so this is maybe what the Buddha meant about being more generous, being more kind, being more sensitive, developing the mind. Like, that really does lead, but it's, it's so scary because we're, I'm leaving behind this other model that I thought led to happiness, which is the sort of, you could call it the business model, where we're in negotiation, we're in competition, and it's a scarce world, and so we have to negotiate with each other, and people who have power, they have power. And so we're trying to get power so that our negotiating position is better. You know, get status or whatever gives us power. So we can basically buy our happiness and own it, you know, and lock it away somewhere so no one can take it. And then we need guards and we need, you know, this. It just gets stressful and neurotic, which is why we're always looking for more happiness because the happiness we've been able to accumulate hasn't satisfied the heart, right? Has anybody totally satisfied with the happiness you have? No. But when we look at the happiness the Buddha points to, which is the happiness of generosity, for example, what can stop us from being generous? How could somebody put the brakes? Can you imagine a situation where you couldn't show up in a generous way? Or the, the other way, you know, this commitment to non-harming, this developing virtue. Is there any moment, any circumstance you've been in in your life where you couldn't act out this great integrity, this great reverence for life? Or uh, that samadhi, which is the third cause for happiness. Is there any moment of your life where you were prevented from being 100% in the moment? Whatever it is, like even giving a talk here or opening a door or walking or washing dishes, we could do that and put the whole world down. Like in this moment, this is what needs to be done. And even, it doesn't mean we don't plan, but then when we plan, we do that 100% too. We give ourselves completely to the task, do what needs to be done in this moment, and put everything else down. And see that, oh, well, that's another, that's a way to be happy. And then the, you know, the kind of resoluteness, the determination, the committedness, it's just the natural expression of that faith. Faith in Buddhism is means that we've seen what works directly in our subjective experience. So it doesn't matter if it contradicts everybody else or the culture because we've seen it. Oh, yeah. I know I like this because I've had it before. I've eaten it before. It doesn't matter that you don't like it or that you don't think it's good because I've eaten it. I've been eating it my whole life and I like it right? because it's my own experience. It doesn't matter what you say. And that's, that's that power of resoluteness when we've studied our life enough that we're not easily uh, knocked off because we know where happiness lies. Let me read a little bit before I open it up for discussion. 
So this is from Ajahn Tomato's article, Now is the Knowing. And he's just talking about mindfulness of breathing practice. But you can think of resoluteness that he's pointed to in this article in terms of anything that uh, that you might wish to be resolute, committed to. So one of the things about resoluteness is this like sticking with something. So he says, our minds are not used to being held down. They've been taught to associate one thing with another in a for- and form opinions about everything. Right? This sort of, in Buddhism we call it papancha, or proliferation, mental proliferation. Always thinking, one thing leading to another. Being accustomed to using our intelligence and ability to think in clever ways, we tend to become very tense and restless when we can't do that. Right? Because we're doing this thing only. And when we practice mindfulness of breathing, we feel resistance and resentment to it. It's like a wild horse when it's first harnessed, getting angry with things that bind it. And that's so it's counterintuitive because we can have this thought that freedom, real freedom, spiritual freedom, is just letting the mind do what it wants. But I tell you, my own experience, and I bet a lot of people in this room can confirm this, that's suffering. I mean, because it's not, when we say let the mind do it with it, do what it wants, what we're really saying is whatever the cultural conditioning that have made my mind, has made my mind desire this and not desire that, that's what it's going to act out. All of that conditioning that I got from watching commercials and being around these people and those people. So when I do that, because I do that, you know, we all do it to some degree in moments where we just sort of give the mind permission to do what it wants. And what do we get? What do we get? You know, when we, I'm just going to eat that. I'm going to watch that. And it's not like everything we do is bad. I'm not trying to say that. But the, when we p- just pursue the superficial desires of the mind, I don't know anybody who's gotten to peace that way. Because there's always... When, have you ever run out of desires? We don't run out. Gratification, like even if we're fortunate enough to get what we want, there's always something else we want. There's no end to desire. So Ajahn Sumedho goes on, I'm skipping uh, some sentences and paragraphs here. Um, When the mind wanders and gets upset and discouraged, negative and averse to the whole thing, if out of frustration, we try to force the mind to be tranquil with with sheer will. We can only keep it up for a short while, and then the mind is off somewhere else. So the right attitude to mindfulness of breathing is to be patient, having that all the time in the world, letting go and discarding all worldly, personal, and financial problems. During this time, there is nothing we have to do except watch our breath. Right? So that's the thing. If we're going to check out if happiness exists where the Buddha says it exists, we have to be willing to be patient and we have to know where to aim. We're aiming and going beyond the dramas, the self-constructed dramas. And there are many, not just a few, there are many, many ways to practice, to put it down, like service, going home and taking care of the people you live with. Empty the litter box, you know, clean the bathroom. You could do that and let go of all of your personal dramas, right? Or just even driving home with real care in the car. Really just being there in the experience. Or even here at the talk, just sort of settling into the flow of us all being here, talking about what we're talking about, listening to each other. Right? Like global warming. I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't pick up and do something about that or racial injustice or your financial situation or anything that might be weighing on your mind. But 
in this moment, it can be put down. Right? It, this moment can be really simple. And in that simplicity, we begin to intuit something that's unbelievable, which is, it's okay. Do you sense that right now? Just like it's okay? Without denying any of the very real truths, like that there is serious oppression going on, or there is serious problems with global warming, or I really don't know how, how I'm going to pay my bills, or I'm, you know, whatever is there, but we can put it down. Or that I'm going to die. But right now, I'm living. Right now I'm breathing. Right now I'm hearing a talk. Right now I'm in a room with a bunch of people. Right now my body feels like this. The interesting we interesting thing we learn is that we actually have to suffering the sense of me suffering, this heart being burdened. It's a construction of our mind. I know that's a provocative thing to say, but we we have to actually create the person who can't bear life or who doesn't like what's going on. I'm not saying that bad things don't happen to us or to people. They do. Clearly they do. Terrible things happen all the time. But when terrible things happen, and I bet a lot of us can relate to this, there has, haven't there been moments when really difficult, really challenging, painful things have happened to you? Haven't there been moments right in the middle of really difficult moments where it wasn't difficult? Or I should say, where there wasn't a suffering person. Isn't that true? That sometimes when, in terms of the outward description of what was going on, it was really bad, but there wasn't anybody suffering. And then maybe there was. And then there wasn't. Because sometimes we go back and forth. Like, as soon as we go, I can't believe this is happening to me, then we have a story of a me who this is happening to, and then we think, I should really be suffering because this is really bad. Like in terms of the story, this is really bad. And then all of a sudden there's a person who's really suffering. But it, in the, some of those moments where we have to engage, have to do, then we do whatever we're going to do. We're back in the flow of activity and maybe it's complicated enough that we actually have to be there 100% or 98%. So we can't be the person who's suffering. We have to put it down for a few moments in order to do whatever we're going to do. It's like even some of you have been in car accidents. You know, the interesting thing about in those moments where the accident is happening, it generally gets our attention, <laughs> right? And we're just doing the best we can. And so the accident itself, the smashing up of your wonderful car, or whatever it might be, or maybe somebody even gets hurt, maybe you get hurt. But it isn't a problem until seconds later when the mind constructs, retells herself our story that I'm the idiot that did this thing and now I gotta and I have to and then there's this other, right? And all of a sudden, it's like everything's heavy. But it wasn't heavy a few moments before. So just think about that in terms of death, your own death. Like we people often say this, like, I just don't, oh, this is a joke actually from Woody Allen. Like, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> and it, we, this is sort of the folklore, the, you know, the cliche of wanting to die in our sleep. But, you know, from a practice point of view, we really want to be there, so there that there's no room in the mind to construct to somebody who thinks this is unfair, that I'm dying, or that it's my time now. Right? But just there, in the knowing of the experience. Now is the knowing, as this title goes. A little later, I'm going to end here because I want to...
create some time for, or have some time for people to share, but there's just one line I want to share where he says, don't make Superman resolutions when you're not Superman. Right? So this resoluteness is not this idealistic, I'm going to do something great. As I mentioned last week and tonight, it's really about just learning where the causes of happiness are and feeling the inspiration come from, like we actually feel that faith energy is a real thing. It's not like I'm going to pretend I have faith in this. It's an actual energy that we tune into. Like, I know this works. And so that's the energy of resoluteness. So we have to begin to check out, organize our life. If, though, if you weren't here last week, I, I asked the group, if a really sincere young person, like a 19-year-old, who's getting pushed around by life, comes to you and says, tell me what you know about happiness and unhappiness, because I'm having a hard time right now figuring this thing out called life, and you've been around longer, so what have you learned? So what would we tell somebody like that? Would we have some actual wisdom that, we c- that we're 100% sure of? Like, this is, this is the sum total of what I have found actually leads to happiness. And this is what I've actually seen doesn't lead to happiness. And you can bank on it, right? I mean, you have to translate what I've said into your own experience. But from my experience, this isn't true for just me. Because real happiness wouldn't be something that's specific to your life. Because everything that's specific to our life comes and goes. So if the happiness you would tell somebody about, like, you know, get an iPhone. They're just so much better than the Android phones. You know, that is not real happiness. You might like your iPhone, but it isn't real happiness. It's just that thing that's really fragile and comes and goes. And then you got to kind of, you feel challenged by people who like Android phones. you got to ignore them. And <laughs> So if you're going to actually have something to share to that young person, that young adult, then it's something that transcends your individual life. It's kind of an, a universal principle for humans, like generosity. Right? But now it's not something you're parroting having heard from the Buddha, it's something you've actually seen in your own life. So it'd be nice to hear from a few of you what you've learned or questions that you have. Remember, you got to point the mic really close and right at your mouth. Who'd like to go first? Yeah, please. Yeah, my name's Alicia. You have to Is get real close. working? Yeah, it's on, but maybe uh, Alan will turn it up a little. Check. Okay. <laughs> My name is Alicia. Um, I've definitely, I've definitely learned a lot in the last couple of years coming here, and um, uh, every minute just trying to go back to the the principles: um, uh, non-attachment. I uh, had to euthanize a, a pet last month and uh, <laughs> but I also have a newborn at home and so watching him develop and grow it's amazing it's, it's a lot wow life <laughs> yeah thanks so much so if you didn't hear she said she had to euthanize her pet a month ago and she also has a newborn at home and the interesting thing is, I mean, that's a lot. And whatever that is, it wants to move. The sadness and grief of losing part of your family and the amazing thing and wild thing and time-consuming thing of having a young, young one at home. And whatever that energy, it wants to move. And I'm sure whenever your mind freezes it up and wants to construct a story, then things feel heavy and unworkable. Like, like to really want to figure out how to be a perfect parent would be real hell, right? 
But to get in the flow of just learning and doing the best you can, and when you make mistakes, learning from them, and when you have successes, learning from that, and just showing up, that might be quite beautiful and enlivening. And the same with losing a pet. When we're in the process of that, and the grieving process, and the energy of sadness and the pain of loss is a movement, it's actually beautiful. It's beautiful to feel life so deeply. But when we're afraid of the pain of sadness and we don't want to feel it, then it can be really hard to bear. Yeah. It's mortality, but also watching this little boy, like he just started smiling and he started rolling over. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Who'd like to go? Thoughts or questions that you have? Yeah, right behind you, Eric. Hi, my name is Eric. Um, I was just wondering if you could say a few words about resoluteness and commitment as as they relate to indecision or when we come to those places where we feel like we just can't seem to decide between one of two possibilities or choices and we sort of get caught up in, in overanalyzing thinking too much, um, yeah. projecting into the future, and it leaves us sort of paralyzed. Um. Anybody experience that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a central question to being happy in life is to negotiate choice. And what really gums it up, and I mean, it's so obvious to say this, but what really gums it up is we want to make the right choice, Right? But isn't that that's a huge arrogant presumption that there's a right choice? Because you know, <laughs> I mean, just to be a little playful, maybe there are two choices. Just if that's, and it's like this is one Eric, and this is another Eric, and neither of them are known. Like doing this choice, you don't know who that Eric will be because it's the future is not yet known. And if you go this way, there will be a different Eric. So it's true. And so maybe the thing is to be more, instead of demanding or even imagining that there's a right and a wrong, just to know honestly that there are choices to be made, choices will be made, avoiding making choices as a choice. So we're just, we're leaning in to the choosing. That's, what you just said is kind of what I'm, finding more and more as I get older that not choosing is actually a choice and by not choosing I sort of um, let circumstances or fate have or what have you decide for me yeah and for a while uh, when I was more your age I used to coin a lot I'd first make really peace with whatever Either way, and and a real sense of humility of knowing that I don't know and that I'm really okay, and then I'd flip a coin. And I'd just do it. And sometimes it was like to do or or to wait. You know, so sometimes it wasn't like A or B. Sometimes it was do this or wait. I'll wait, or I'll do it. And it's it's really nice to play that way because. It strips away self-importance, which is always about those dramas that haunt us. They literally haunt us and they weigh us down. When we imagine the dramas, the stories we tell to be more than what they are, they're something. I'm not saying they're nothing, but they're not reality. They're stories that we tell about our lives. And when we take them to be reality, then we invest in them the suffering that 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 reality implies. But they're just stories. Yeah, thanks, Eric, for sharing that. Maybe time for one more comment, if there's anything else that... Yeah, all the way in the back here. Sometimes the mic doesn't work very well when we get further away from the closet, but try it. All right. Um, I... So we talk about these stories, and um, I'm going to go see my therapist tomorrow. I am feeling extremely depressed, and I have a lot of stories 
and I'm living deeply in those stories and I'm having a hard time ever moving out of those stories. I'm just wondering if you could talk about, and I feel like the thing that's missing is the daily sitting. Um, or other activities. I mean, well, formal right. sitting is a great one. But just simple things like when you fold your clothes tonight, to just like, yeah, you can pick up the stories in a moment, but for now, let's just really do this. Right. And then when you're brushing your teeth, let's just do this. Right. And then maybe even give yourself some time to think the stories, but notice what that's like. Okay, you know, for 15 minutes, you can think, but I... But every few moments, I want you to just stop, put the story down, and just notice what's getting set in motion. Okay, now the 15 minutes are over. Now you're not going to think anymore. And when you do, we're going to say, honey, do you really need to do this? No. And you put it down. And then you go back to it. Do I really need? No. Right? And you that's that uh, resoluteness to really don't wait until you sit. You can be using all parts of life punctuate the stories to put them down. And another thing I do is I lie down once or twice in the middle of the day because then I drop my dramas. Like I, I use that lying down time, that nap. I mean, it's not really a nap. I don't often fall asleep. But just to rest, like now I don't have to be a person. I don't have to respond to my phone. I don't need to think about this or that. I can just feel the body relaxing resting and it's a real sign of mental health to be able to put it down and it doesn't mean we won't pick it up it just means now I don't have to pick it up that's what makes it so healthy to realize that now I don't have to be worrying or thinking or planning yeah thanks Thank for you. sharing we need to leave it here it's 8 30 we'll take uh, time for a breath or two together Let go of the words. Notice the space of the mind for a moment. Wide open. And perhaps feeling some gratitude for these teachings. All the women, all the men through the generations. They had busy, complicated lives like we do, but they did their practice, became wise and compassionate, and passed it along to the next generation. And now it's our turn, our busy, complicated lives, to do the best we can, to become wise, compassionate human beings, to model this wisdom so that we're a cause for peace in our hearts and in the world. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.